If God is love, don't be a jerk. Simple enough, right? Love others the way that you love yourself and put people's needs before your own. As Christians, that's what we are called to do. But over the last nearly two years, putting others' needs before our own has somehow become political. It's somehow become the driving force behind so much division. Division that my guest today continues to shine a light on. John Pavlovitz, an author and pastor, continuously uses his platform to call out hypocrisy in the church and the Republican Party. His words and heart have been a safe place for many people of faith to land, people who have been turned off by the hateful rhetoric of those who claim to know God. Because to know God is to understand what it means to love others. And that's where we, as a country, have failed. This is the final episode of We Need to Talk Faith and Politics. John Pavlovitz, my dear, dear, sweet friend, thank you so much for being on the show again. It is so good to see you again and to be back with you. Absolutely. Um, you, my friend, do not stop. You have been through quite the journey the last few months, but I am very honored that you're taking the time to be here. How are you feeling first and foremost? Uh, thanks for asking. I'm, I'm feeling great. I mean, it's six weeks out from brain surgery and today was one of those days where I almost didn't remember that I had it done. You know, I'm able to go around and do normal activity and feel relatively normal. Um, still have to be careful at times and still listen to my body when I kind of get depleted. Um, but really miraculous what, what they can do, uh, inside your body. And, uh, so I'm just really fortunate. We've got about three weeks until we find out if they got all the tumor and then we'll see what we are dealing with from there. But right now it's just, it's good stuff. Good. Well, praise God. I'm so glad for that. And thanks for, of course, keeping in touch throughout all of this. And I know you have so much love and support. And so everyone's yeah. rooting for you to just be back to 100%, John. Yeah, thank you. And it's and it's been really something to see, you know, we're doing the work we do. We know virtual community is real, but to, to see how, how tangible it can become and how important it is, it tethers us to one another in ways. And so when I you know, started inviting people to come on this journey. I had no idea that it was going to be that nurturing of an experience. And you see the reciprocal power of what we're doing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I can think of a better person to do the last chat about for the series of faith and politics. They're two very complicated entities, but I think we probably have the shared perspective that they don't have to be. But yeah. in this country, they just have become. And, you know, a lot of people, as we know, they use their religious beliefs to dictate what their political views are as well, be it your average citizen or your elected official. And, you know, when it comes to politicians, for example, but more specifically conservative politicians, I have noticed that when they bring up religion in their arguments for their stances, it's never for altruistic purposes. It always seems to be from self-interest. And that's been effective for them because they, they use the right language to pander to a certain demographic. So my first question to you is, when it comes to how Democrats and Republicans choose to reach certain bases, do you think that Democrats in any way have missed opportunities with the language that they use in trying to reach the Christian base? Because I feel like personally on this side, that if, they're, if they change some of their ways that they expressed their Democratic policies, maybe more Christians would realize how Christ-like Democratic policies actually are. 
Uh, no question. I mean, that's been the work I've been doing for a while. And I think if you look, you know, a few decades ago when the religious right, you know, started to claim ownership of Christianity and almost began to put uh, Democrats on the defensive and they became worried about the language of spirituality to the point where I think they relinquished the conversation about faith and Republicans became the only visible representation for people of the Christian faith. And so part of the work that I do, and I know you do, is to try to remind people that there is an alternative expression of the life and teachings of Jesus that actually seems to resemble the life and teachings of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just noticed also, and I had this conversation earlier, that there's such a lack in faith on the liberal side instead of the conservative side. And why do you think that is? Well, I was actually talking to someone today about that in in the, the idea that we don't have on the left, even things like Franklin Graham's. We don't have figures to many to really rally around or point to. And we have no um, hubs around which to gather in large um, numbers. And I think part of that is because progressive spirituality tends to be more passive or at least more open about other people's stories. And so we're not trying to say, this is the only way. And because of that, I think it's been difficult to leverage sort of the urgency that the religious right has. Religious right has hell, which we don't usually tend to traffic in. And then they have that fear, that fear of the outsider and that adversarial um, position, you know, the religious right is always in a battle posture against everything, as you mentioned, and we're trying to come from a place of empathy and kindness and generosity. And that's really something that's hard to kind of position publicly. You know, in a lot of your work as a progressive pastor has led you to doing work outside of the church, which if we're being honest, that's where most of the work should be done anyway, right? That's what Jesus did. He was outside. He was on the streets. But do you ever feel like your words aren't being heard by the people that actually need to hear them? Or do you think that you're teaching who you need to teach? Well, what I love about being sort of a virtual uh, minister is that I can release those words into the world and they really have no restraints. So I'm not necessarily reaching the people as they're not choosing necessarily to read the words, but their friends and their neighbors and their church friends are reading it and then engaging them. So it's still trickling down to them, even if they might resist seeing me, they might see my name and say, I'm not going to read that guy's book. But what I am doing is able to reach a number of people who relationally are connecting with those people. And that's the important thing, because I can't preach them into compassion. I can't argue them into having empathy for people who don't look like them or believe like them. But I can reach the people around them. And hopefully in that relational, small and close space, that's where some of the change happens. Yeah, yeah, I love that that attitude. Um, you know, you just released your your new book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, which I love it. I've always been a, a fan of your writing and your humor. And I love that you have the ability to guide people without necessarily coddling them. But while you were writing the book, a lot was going on in the country. So for you personally, what were some of the struggles that you came across when trying to write these words to reach people while watching everything that was happening? Well, Melinda, I mean, this book, I think the reason I love it so much now is because it was so hard fought because I started this book, I started writing it in March of 2020, and it was going to be a very different book. It was still touching on a lot of the same themes, 
but I, it was more detached. It was sort of a diagnosis of this toxic Christianity. But then when, we, when the pandemic started to unfold and then we got into the summer and you started to see not only Black Lives Matter protests and the high profile killings of unarmed Black people, but the resistance of people to those protests. And I'm looking at all this discord and all this um, anger, and I'm seeing that most of it seems to be coming from professed Christians who are white. And most of my work is about responding in real time. And I was trying to write the first book and ignore or just basically keep on the periphery all that was happening. And I finally just said, you know, I need to speak directly, explicitly into this. And I went to my editors and said, I can't write the book that I was going to write anymore. And they said, well, what book could you write? And that became this book. And in many ways, it became much more personal and visceral and, and there was an authenticity there that I don't think it would have had any other way. And it shows, it shows. Cause I remember when you started writing it and then I, as reading it, I'm like, oh, this is actually like pretty recent stuff. Yeah. And there were, there was a, you know, there's a fear to that, you know, okay, I got to actually, you know, when you write a book, they leave you alone for six months or so. Yeah. And then they just say, you know, here's the book. And so I, it, we interrupted that process and I said, here's what I need to do. But then you had this really shortened time, but I think there was a, there's a purity to it. There is a directness to it. And I just kept waking up every day saying, I don't want to waste a line of this book. I don't want to waste a word. I don't want to pad it. I want every line to mean something. And so that was just, that was my life for the months that I wrote this. And in part of your book, you talk about what God looks like. And I love this because I have this conversation a lot with people and I've seen this idea really mess with a lot of conservatives um, about the idea of God being genderless. And in general, we know that God is mainly referred to as the father, which obviously right. in our basic understanding, that word is male. But in your growth and your learning and your deconstruction, how did you come to the conclusion that if God truly is God, he can't be confined by a gender identity? Well, I think that the smallness of the God that I was raised to believe in started to become more and more apparent to me that if God had this expansive love, then that love is going to overcome anything that I can do, any qualifiers that I can place on that. And then you start to take that idea and you bring it to something like gender. And I always wondered, well, how was God's gender even established? How could someone simply say, well, yeah, what would be the maleness of God. And then you just start saying, if God is who we say God is and worthy, you know, of that title of divinity, then it encompasses every part of who humanity is. And there are no rules then. I mean, then mm -hmm. everything is on the table. And you can say, of course, God is expansive enough to encompass this gender, this nationality, um, this perspective. And there's a freedom there that I wish mm -hmm. more conservative, orthodox you know, Christians have had, because once you have that, um, the world becomes, you know, it, it, this planet becomes a place to see God. And yeah. that's, that's the beautiful part. And you know, it's interesting, because I don't understand what the fear would be in seeing God in that way. You know, like, what are you afraid of, of saying, hey, God is really, truly all of us? Because it says there, yeah. that we are all created in God's image. So why does that change? That's what I've never understood. Yeah. And and I was talking to my kids yesterday. We were talking about the idea that for God so loved the world is this scripture that so many Christians will put on banners and T-shirts. And yet what, what you see is that their perspective is that God maybe doesn't really love the world. They see the America as the world or white America as the world. Mm -hmm. And they're missing out on this breadth and depth of who 
God would have to be to be God. And yeah. uh, that's the better path. We know that. We know diversity is always going to be better than a lack of diversity. And I just wish people who are fearful of that could step into that sp- expansive space. It's, I hope we get there eventually, but yeah, it's something I don't understand. Like I truly can't wrap my mind around it because I do think diversity is a beautiful thing and I don't understand what the problem is. Well, I think part of it is, you know, the book touches on the ideas that faith, uh, grief and fear are at the core of so much of our existence. And that fear, when you're taught to believe that, um, LGBTQ people are bad or Muslims are bad, well, then it's almost impossible for you to say, I can find God in an LGBTQ person, or I can Mm -hmm. see the character of God in a non-Christian. And so it's almost the guilt that says, if I consent to that, I have gone against everything that my story has told me. And it's hard to deprogram someone from that. You know, I I try to argue with with some people's God, and you can't win an argument with their God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was this, I don't know if you saw this, but there was this picture of this church. I didn't catch where it was from, but it was a picture of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery. And it said the face of God on the banner. Of course, it it just caused uproar. But I loved that because that's exactly what it is. Why aren't they the face of God? You know, why can't you see God in those three people that lost their lives? So I love when churches kind of, you know, push the envelope with their messaging in that way, because that's the type of church that I get on board with. And I think it's beautiful when they try to make that point. Yeah. And I think what that does is it disarms people because if they are professed Christians, they have to reckon with the idea of loving the least of these and what does, who are the least right now, or to love my enemies and who do they perceive as the enemy. So then they have to take Jesus and they're confronted with the reality of what he requires of them. And that's, then you take the onus off of you and put it on them and Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. So when you started your deconstruction journey, we'll call it, you know, how did that process affect your political beliefs? Well, for, for me, what it coincided, someone said, oh, you seem to have come along right when Trump did. And I was like, well, that's a terrible coincidence. But for me, I was I was probably, you know, 15 years into ministry and had begun to see the cracks in my theology or the, the traditions that I was brought up in. And right as the 2016 campaign started to happen, I began to realize I had a responsibility as a white pastor in the South to speak explicitly into this situation. So I'd never written about politics before, never mentioned politicians by name, but saw a very distinct danger and an urgency that I hadn't seen in my lifetime. So I began to, by default, just be more and more out there and my beliefs. And then once people started reading them, I became like a, a go-to for a lot of people for because I was a Christian. And say, saying those things and being a Christian was something not a lot of people on the left had. Yeah. So I think I became um, something comforting or something where people could say, okay, I can do this. I can have spirituality and a non-conservative you know, political perspective. What do you think it would take for people who left the church that do lean on the more progressive side, but, you know, they suffer from church hurt, church trauma, all of that stuff, but still believe in God to kind of follow the Jesus path and reclaim the church from those who have hijacked it for their own gain? I think the thing that more and more right now frustrates me is the feeling that that we can't do that because... Mm -hmm. Because for so long, the voice of Christianity now is synonymous 
with your Jerry Falwells and your Franklin Grahams and your Donald Trumps somehow. Mm -hmm. And so we go out and we have this message that we know is really close to the compassionate activist heart of Jesus. And yet people are going to place it in the same container as so much of what they've seen. And so we almost have to do this work without even naming it for a while. Um, I think we're going to need some decades to detox from this thing. And there's going to have to be a movement that starts that is so clearly present. Um, I call it the community of the convinced in the book. There's going to have to be a movement that is so beautiful and undeniable that it, it is an alternative to that thing, because until then it's going to be, it's going to be tied into that thing somehow. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I've been I've met I've really quickly I've been talking to yeah. people, you know, doing this work for 50 years in the church and they're saying we're still trying to reclaim Christianity. And at some point it's like, what do you do? How do you overcome decades of this just bastardized version of the Jesus way? Yeah. And it's frustrating because and I actually just started writing a song about this, but about it's like who's going to save Jesus from the church, you know, because. Can you even imagine just like if coming back, you're like, how did my name get tarnished in this way? Exactly. And, you know, I've written about it and, and the idea that Jesus shows up teaching what he was teaching and saying what he was saying and looking the way he looked mm -hmm. would not be welcome in MAGA America or in the Republican Party and, and, and in the evangelical church. And that is the complete moral inversion that this tradition has undertaken. And so those of us who are still seeing it the right, the right side up, we've got to figure out now how to go about just embodying it. People don't yeah. care to be preached anymore. Younger people, they don't want to hear um, theology battles or doctrinal battles. They want to see beauty happen in the world. Yes, 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 yes. Because it, to me, it, that's the simple thing. And to me, love, just like you say, if God is love, don't be a jerk. If you just go back to love, none of this should be very complicated. None of it. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, you try to say, okay, empathy, could we, and someone said, why did you call the book, uh, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk? Why didn't you call it, If God is Love, Love People? And I said, well, I'm speaking to a large group of people who I, getting them to love is going to be impossible. My, my aspirations for humanity has gotten very pedestrian. <laughs> so I just said, can you just start by not doing harm? Yeah. And I think that's for, for people like us. It's, we look at the church and we say, it doesn't only seem exclusive exclusionary but predatory it seems to be embracing cruelty and that as a follower of jesus i can't see that cognitive dissonance how that inhabits the same heart no i'm i'm with you i'm with you completely and it's it makes me wonder if in, as we're talking about this you know do you think the reason why so many more conservative churches have louder voices in the room when it comes to politics versus progressive churches, do you think that comes down to just financial stability? Partly that and partly, I, you know, I was talking to a pastor years ago and he said, John, I miss hell. I used to have hell. I could leverage that. I could get people to volunteer and to give and to vote and to participate. And when I lost that, when I lost the ability to leverage someone's fear and urgency and I didn't have damnation, I, I lost a lot of, um, a way to mobilize my people, mm. sadly. And I think that's a little bit of the, of the equation too, is that um, we have to create an urgency around the threat to humanity and the planet. We have to show that people are in under duress and that has to be the thing that we get people, you know, 2022 is coming and it's hard to get people moving. And part of it is you've got to show them the danger that is, 
all around us to people in the trenches of their everyday lives. You know, I've talked to you a little bit also about how people interpret the Bible and weaponized scripture, which we know is so common, um, specifically on the conservative side. And, you know, people's interpretations of the Bible are guided by their environments, who they're hearing the verses from, you know, what your upbringing is, all of that stuff, right? Because I can read a Bible verse and interpret it one way and someone from Texas will completely (laughs) read it a different way, right? Yes. But in your faith journey and being a teacher and being this virtual pastor, how do you know that you've interpreted Jesus's teaching and message the right way? Well, I largely assume that I probably haven't. Um, I assume that I'm taking baggage. You know, it took me, you know, decades to even reckon with the reality of my privilege or the the story of America that I grew up in and how different it was. And there's a grieving that takes place. There's a sense of loss. There's a confrontation you have to have with your former self, with your tradition. And so through that, realizing you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I wasn't less authentic. I really believed that. And that's part of the story here is, is I have to be willing to realize I have to hold my beliefs with some measure of humility and realize that I'm probably going to disagree with this version of myself soon. Um, so I assume that I've gotten parts of it wrong. However, I will say at the end of the day, I ask if what I'm doing is yielding more empathy or less? Is there more diversity around me or is there less diversity? Do more people feel seen and heard and loved or less people? And, you know, and if there are fewer people who feel that way, then I've probably gotten the Jesus teachings wrong. You know, another thing you talk about in your book, one thing I will say this, one thing I do really love about your book is your self-awareness. And I love how, um, honest you are, even about the times that you've messed up, which I think is great. And a lot of people aren't able to do that. But it also comes down to because there's such a lack of self-awareness for a lot of people, that's kind of what's keeping them from loving others. So aside from self-awareness, why do you think that loving others has been such a difficult concept specifically in this country? I think that the the religious system here, that evangelical Christianity in America, conservative Christianity, has been based on um, a moral judgment on other people. And I think the more that seeps into our everyday life, it's almost as if we, there's a, this is not a zero sum game. I'm trying to always tell Christians, other people's gain is not your loss. And there's actually the interdependence of humanity is the better path. So I want everyone to do well. So Mm -hmm. when Jesus is proclaiming shalom, he's not just looking for an absence of, of negative. He wants abundance for the other. You know, he wants goodness for the other. And I think that's what we have lost in American Christianity, the sense that it's not just God wants us to be happy and do well and the people we think are our people, but everyone is our neighbor. Everyone is the least of these and everyone is the the, the beggar that I am called to take out and, and help heal and, and restore. And that's what we have to get back or we're just doomed. Doomed is the correct word. (laughs) Yeah. How do you personally show your faith through your political views? I, I hope that my political views are always trying to see who is not yet at the table, who is not yet feeling peace, who is, you know, we, you know, this really well. I mean, I went through this, this surgery issue and realizing just the massive scale of financial scale of the of the difficulty and then you've got the emotional stuff so my political views are hopefully always looking for 
I, when I was a student pastor, I used to say, I, I look at the crowd, but I look at the periphery of the room and I look at who's uncomfortable and whose body language says, I don't feel right there yet. And that's what I want politics to do, to be an extension of my spirituality, which is a pulling in and inviting in. Yeah, it's th- that thought of being selfless. And I think that that's what more people need to do. But unfortunately, we have gotten into that me, me, me stances for a lot of things. And that's what's so frustrating for me is because if I know that something is going to affect me personally, but it's better for the common good, Mm -hmm. I'm going to vote for that. I'm going to vote for that because I'll probably at the end of the day be fine. But if everybody else would be affected by me voting against something, then that's not we're not doing what Christ called us to do. And, and what, you know, I think part of so many people's religion has been so skewed that they don't even understand what, what success looks like in their lives. So they're thinking about financial gain, or they're thinking about some sort of way that they define um, abundance. And I think, and they're, but yet the the irony is they're always living in lack. Like I don't Mm. have enough and they're living with closed fists because they feel like I cannot lose what I have. And then you see the Jesus movement, it is completely about, I'm going to open my hands and I'm going to give you what I have because I know that that is going to make the common good better. Yeah. And um, and that's the sad part. You just, I grieve for people. I've written about this before. I don't want people to see me as the enemy because I'm fighting for them too. I want their children, you know, if someone said to me, oh, John, you know, Trump supporters, they, they're loving, they love their kids and they love their families and friends. And I said, of course they do. We all do. I want to make sure people love people who aren't their family and yes. aren't their friends. Um, yes. That seems to be the way of Jesus. Yeah. I, I feel like I saw on your Twitter feed that somebody made a comment in regards to you saying that I think it was an immigrant child is just as important as... Yeah. Somebody, yeah, and that concept is just nobody can grasp that for some reason. But it, that's what it is. Yeah. is that you want the same rights for your children as those children that you don't know, because that's just what it is. You're supposed to love everybody. And I, I truly do hope that eventually people will realize that. But in your attempts of kind of pushing these messages, have you been successful reaching across the aisle? No. Day night. Uh, no, I mean, you, you define success. In, in, wait, in, wait, I have to go back to just that definitive no. You're like, no. I mean, you I just have to be there and that'll be it, you know? Uh, you know, I think it depends on how you how you define it. I get letters all the time. People say, boy, you know, five years ago, uh, my pastor shared your work and I was really angry. And I thought, you know, I, I hated you. But I began listening and I started to realize that we had a lot of commonalities. And so I think by nature of what I do, I'm placed out there as sort of a confrontational figure for people. And but yeah, I'm hoping that they read a book like this and they and many have many do. They say, okay, I don't agree with you on all this, but here's a place where we can find affinity. And that's what I want for the book. You know, I tell people all the time, I don't need for you to agree with agree with me theologically or politically. I just want you to move from where you are to a more empathetic place toward humanity. And then I've done my job. So Mm -hmm. the goal is not necessarily everyone voting like me, but it is them being aware of some of the realities of this life. In terms of the church and the place that it has in society, what do you think the future of the church is? I think it's going to be... I tell people a lot and they think I'm just being uh, 
cavalier about it or just, you know, trying to get a rise on people. I think the church is going to be defined by the people who are not a part of the church. Mm. Because I look at the community that I've been fortunate enough to become aware of because of the writing. My writing has served as a hub. It's not about them coming. They're not coming to worship John. They're coming because they're asking some of the same questions feeling some of the same prompts they're they're outraged by this by similar things and i see that disparate group of people and that's the church to me um yeah. we when we when i you know do a when i speak at a church or I speak at a community center all these people show up to talk about the deepest contents of their hearts and why they're motivated to work on behalf of mercy and compassion and love and justice and then i see that's as that's as religious as i need it to be yeah. So the church being the body of people of faith, morality, and conscience, that's going to always persevere. It just is not going to show up on Sunday mornings in a building. In general, do you think that the church will ever untether itself from our government? Because even though we, quote unquote, have separation of church and state, we know that there really, really isn't, to be honest, yeah. you know, right? So do yeah. you think there will ever come a time when they won't be as closely connected as they are now. It's going to be really difficult, Melinda, because I think I always, you know, when I'm having conversations with people, I, I know that my personal faith cannot be disconnected from my political causes that I support. So, in a, you know, there is no separation of church and state, so to speak, within me. Yeah, That's yeah. a really hard thing to do because I want legislation that I want health care for all people. I want right. all people to have access to education. So by default, as I participate in the political process, my religion, my spirituality comes to bear. And so once you see how powerful that makes you, I think it's really hard to, for a group of people to let go of that. Yeah. So if it were the other way, and if it were Democrats or liberals who had this sort of monopoly on spirituality, they would probably be similarly poisoned by it. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's always going to be something Christianity resists power. It resists being the dominant force. It was always the yeast in the dough. It was always the people of the street. So it's going to be a hard thing to, to have both of those. Yeah. Well, John, I am so grateful for you. And I, I hope that you are getting the response that you wanted from your book. I know that it will change a lot of people. I've recommended it to so many people just by the title alone. They're excited about it. But can you let everybody know where they can get it and how they can support you? Sure. And once you can spell my name, uh, John Pavlovitz, um, there are not many of us on the planet, so you'll probably find me. Um, so John I can't Pavlovitz. imagine there's any other John Pavlovitz. I think there's, one, well, there's, there's four or five, but we're getting them kicked off social media right now because they're, you know, pretending to be me. Um, oh, gosh. Okay. I don't, well, That's I wouldn't wish that, you know. that up on anyone, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, johnpavlovitz.com and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. And I'm just grateful to for the book. It is, you know, it's reaching so many people. Yeah. Three days before my, my surgery, I said, Kay, can you help lift this book into the world? And people have. And we're just really, I'm just thrilled about it. Well, it was needed. You are needed. And I am so grateful for you and our friendship. So thank you again for joining me. My pleasure, as always. And to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in for this series of Faith and Politics. We'll be taking a four-week break and be back for season six of We Need to Talk on January 10th. Be well and happy holidays.